I'm launching this evening for the next few weeks. Of course, next Wednesday we'll not meet because of Vacation Bible School. But in these intervening weeks in uh, the summer, we're going to look at some psalms consecutively uh, rather than jumping into the sermon on the uh, flip side of heaven and looking at the reality of hell in the scripture. We're going to do that a little bit later on, but what I want to do in these weeks due to some ministry travel and some other things that will be upcoming uh, on my part is we're going to look at some psalms uh, continuing tonight in Psalm 14 and then moving forward with several of them in the coming weeks. After that, uh, we're going to focus on a series on overcoming fear and how do we deal with fear, just a real short summer series. And then I'm going to come back to a series on really the theology of hell, our understanding of hell from the Bible. And that's probably going to take me about eight or nine weeks. And I want to be able to do that mostly consecutively. And that'll be toward the end of the summer and leading into the fall. So that's what our roadmap is in the weeks ahead. But this evening, our focus is in Psalm 14 on the futility of unbelief. Now, I want to think about this from a couple of different angles. One, the reality of people who just are obstinate unbelievers who want nothing to do with anything supernatural or anything that is outside of themselves or outside of this world. And then I want us to think about the effects of unbelief in the culture, even by people who perhaps use the language of God or use the language of religion but in reality, you're not following a biblical uh, map at all for their lives or for their decisions. And we're going to look at this uh, at a couple of different angles as we go along here this evening. And I want to start by drawing attention to the religiously unaffiliated in our country. Let's think for a moment about the United States. Um, the nuns, is N-O-N-E-S, is a category that comprises one of the fastest growing groups in the United States. And it experienced a rapid growth from 2007 to 2014 in particular, and it jumped from 16% of the population to 22% of our population who say they have no religious affiliation at all. Since 1990, uh, the percentage of Americans with no religious affiliation has actually tripled. And if you look at the millennial generation, which is that larger generation that's younger, uh, 35% of them identify as religiously unaffiliated. So just do the simple math. That's more than one out of three within that generation that's coming who says they're not affiliated with anything. Now, I'm not going to get into the aspect of what that is going to mean for the church in the West in the long run. I think you can draw some of your own conclusions short of a spiritual awakening. But the religiously unaffiliated share of the population that consists of people who would identify as atheist, agnostic, or nothing in particular, now stands at 26% of the total population in the United States. That's one out of four, with the younger generation being one out of three. In fact, for the first time, the religiously unaffiliated as a group are the same size as both Roman Catholics and Evangelical Protestants that comprise the two largest religious groups in the United States. 
Now, this is not altogether surprising. The trend has followed what has taken place in Europe, uh, where a large percentage, depending on the country, identifies as unaffiliated. Uh, In Italy, for example, the center of Catholicism, uh, religious adherence matches that of the United States with one out of four uh, saying that they attend some type of church service once a week. Other populous European countries like Spain and Great Britain have fallen to all-time lows, while in Germany and France, fewer than one out of ten people attend church one time a week or more. That's 10% or less in those two nations. So that just gives you a snapshot of kind of where things have trended. Meanwhile, God's church has grown significantly in the global east and the global south, sub-Saharan Africa, places like uh, East Asia, Southeast Asia, South Asia. Uh, God's church is advancing, uh, but here in the west, we're seeing more and more of a secularization and a lack of belief. Now, there's something called the theory of secularization, which says that as societies become more modern or more advanced, they become less religious. I would couple with that the more prosperous societies get, the less they tend to have faith because they're self-dependent. They don't see the need for anyone other than themselves. Psalm 14 addresses the futility of unbelief. The psalm is simply titled to the chief musician. It's a psalm of David. David is the author, and I think he is looking ultimately to God himself. Uh, And this psalm was intended to be used for corporate worship. And in the book of Psalms, there are 53 of the psalms that are designated specifically for corporate worship. G. Campbell Morgan said the thought of the whole psalm is the safety of godliness and the peril of ungodliness. David is concerned about people around him who are living as if there is no God, people who fail to acknowledge God, people who practically ignore God, and maybe even people that are antagonistic toward God and people who have faith. And the psalm addresses the reality of what it's like for people who do believe to live in the midst of a lot of people who don't believe. And then the psalm ends on a positive note, really yearning for salvation, uh, for God to restore the fortunes of his people. So let's read these seven short verses, and then I want to share some truths with you about the futility of unbelief. The fool says in his heart, there's no God. They are corrupt. They do vile deeds. There is no one who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the human race to see if there is one who is wise, one who seeks God. All have turned away. All alike have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Verse 4, will evildoers never understand? They consume my people as they consume bread. They do not call on the Lord. Then they will be filled with dread, for God is with those who are righteous. You sinners frustrate the plans of the oppressed, but the Lord is his refuge. Verse 7, Oh, that Israel's deliverance would come from Zion when the Lord restores the fortunes of his people. Let Jacob rejoice, 
let Israel be glad. The futility of unbelief points us to the truth that unbelief says there is no God. Unbelief says there is no God. Notice verse 1. It's exactly what he says. There's no God. Now, you'll find it interesting, I think, here that the word for fool is plural. It also is minus the definite article. The psalm is not highlighting an individual foolish person, even though uh, the individual foolish person would be encompassed in the group. It's dealing with an entire category of foolish people. It's a collective attitude that there is no God. Now, in an effort to accurately uh, communicate what many people in this category believe, I bring to you a couple of definitions, one from the American atheist and one from the American humanist. You can find this on your own, online. I don't know why you'd want to, but here they are. From the American atheist, atheism is the comprehensive worldview of persons who are free from theism and have freed themselves of supernatural beliefs altogether. It is predicated on ancient Greek materialism. Atheism involves the mental attitude that unreservedly accepts the supremacy of reason and aims at establishing a lifestyle and ethical outlook verifiable by experience and the scientific method, independent of all arbitrary assumptions of authority and creeds. And then from the American humanist. Humanism is a philosophy, a worldview, or a life stance based on naturalism. This is something that I refer to on occasion. And philosophically and from a religious perspective, it's the conviction that the universe is all there is. Nature is all that is existing or will exist. It says here, humanism serves for many humanists some of the psychological and social functions of a religion. Is that not interesting? But without belief in deities, transcendental entities, miracles, life after death, and the supernatural. Humanists seek to understand the universe by using science and the methods of critical inquiry, logical reasoning, and skeptical evaluation of conjectures and conclusions to obtain reliable knowledge. Now, what does the scripture say here about the foolish, those who say there is no God. Well, uh, it indicates here that the foolish person is wickedly foolish, meaning uh, basically deficient in reasoning, um, acting contrary to sound wisdom. I think about a reference to uh, someone whose name meant fool in 1 Samuel chapter 25, the rich man named Nabal. Uh, He was noted to be harsh and evil in his dealings with people. And when David had his men approach the man peacefully asking for provision, you remember that Nabal insulted them. And David prepared to go to war against him. uh, But his wife, Nabal's wife, interceded, reminding David that her husband's name meant fool, Nabal, and that that he had lived up to his name. And then she persuaded David to to spare Nabal, uh, but the Lord struck him and he died. Verse 38. This is the type of person who is in it for themselves. Think about it. If, 
you're not uh, thinking about serving other people, uh, other people being valuable, having been created in the image of God, then you very much come down to this mindset of the survival of the fittest. Everybody's going to get what's theirs. It doesn't matter what it costs to other people. And the scripture says here that they are corrupt, pointing to ruin and to devastation. Uh, the same word is used in reference to the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, and that's not by accident. The same word's also used regarding the earth uh, that God was prompted to destroy because of the pervasiveness of sin and evil. The fool uh, does vile deeds, abominable things, uh, things that offend God. Now, what would be an example of this? Well, The issue of idolatry certainly would. That's a thread that runs throughout the entirety of the Old Testament where the people would be drawn away to things that weren't God but represented a God. And time and time again, God would discipline his people. He would bring judgment and there would often be a return, but then they would go right back to it. And in Our culture, we don't think about, in a Western context, we don't typically think about constructing an idol that we put up on the dashboard of our car or or maybe we set up on the shelf at home and and bring food to or whatever. But we've seen the influence of of that type of idolatry that's uh, serving of self because you're trying to get what you want. Now, the scripture says here, there is no one who does good. Now, think about how this is opposite of what the creation narrative is. When God created the world, the Bible says that God uh, saw everything he had made, and behold, it was what? It was very good. So everything that God made was very good, but now here are people who don't do any good. You say, what what about uh, common grace, or what about... Uh, things that people do that might be virtuous, but it might not be connected to something religious or spiritual. The point, that's the greater point of the scripture is, the good that is being referenced here is something that would relate to the righteousness of God. So yes, people can do things that we might even deem as moral or acceptable or consistent with uh, acting upon the common grace that they've been shown, but there's no righteousness to it ultimately. They're not able to please God with those things. Uh, And that's how it should be because God's righteousness is far greater than what we can even uh, conceive of in in our limited thinking. Fools do nothing good related to the righteousness of God or redeeming spiritual value. Now, ultimately, a fool is someone who disregards God's word. Because after all, if there's not an authority, if there's not a supernatural, transcendent, and then also imminent God, then we're our own God. Uh, We don't need God, so we don't call it that, but we're our own authority. Uh, We're our own decision makers. And unbelief says that there is no God. I don't need him because I can do what I need to do, and there is no such thing as God beyond me. Now, I think in this context... Evolution is the fruit of this. If you think about Darwin's work, if you've read much on evolution, if you've read much of really his entire worldview and philosophy, um, I read one quote today from Darwin that said, as soon as you realize that one species could evolve into another, 
the whole structure, speaking of the structure of religion, wobbles and collapses. And if man were nothing but a superior animal, where would that leave his spiritual dignity? And if he himself is the product of evolution, then what about his moral accountability to God? That's the thinking that uh, we don't need God, that there's no context for which we could need, need God. Now, I told you tonight at the outset that I also wanted to think about this from the angle, not just blatant unbelief, um, kind of belligerent people, the, the modern atheists that we think about that love to debate and are constantly writing websites and tweeting things anytime that there's anything from Christianity. Uh, we're, we know those people. They're out in the open. They're, they're obvious to see. But I want you to realize as well that unbelief also acts as if there is no God, even if the language of God is implemented. Now, this is sometimes difficult to discern, but you can very simply discern it by its actions. You can couch something in religious belief. You can couch it in some type of spiritual language, and it still be contrary to the Word of God. And ultimately, unbelief is a denial of the Word of God. Let's think about some current issues that we're dealing with in our country. One of the front button, uh, front burner issues at the moment is the Hyde Amendment. Uh, the Hyde Amendment has been a longstanding ban on federal funding for most abortions, and the current administration's budget proposal removes the Hyde Amendment that permits federal funding for most any type of abortion. Now, you can use all the spiritual language you want to use. You can couch it in whatever terms that you want to use. But if you're actively promoting the taking of innocent baby, babies' lives, then that is a denial of the Word of God. It just very simply is. Thou shalt not murder. Uh, God didn't equivocate when he said that. Another issue that we saw recently, and this is a little bit closer to home, was that we saw the National Day of Prayer Declaration. Now, I don't know if you read this or not. This is true. You can fact check this for yourself. The National Day of Prayer intentionally did not mention God at all. All it said was Americans from many religions and belief systems have turned to prayer. What does that even mean? Turn to prayer to what? Turn to prayer to the ground or the moon or themselves or, I mean, what does that even mean? There was an intentional absence of God, ironically, in the national day of prayer. What about some issues that foundationally redefine humanity? I looked at some uh, headlines today. This is kind of across the spectrum. It has to do with a lot of uh, human sexuality issues. And I very carefully drew headlines that are from what would historically be considered mainstream sources. So this is not radical uh, websites that there's two or three people that adhere to it. These are mainstream news sources. Listen to what some of the headlines are. Margaret Cho talks polyamory, pansexuality, and her parents' gay bookstore from the Today Show. Newsweek magazine headline, I've had three long-term polyamorous relationships. 
from the Dallas Observer what it's really like to be in a thruple, T-H-R-U-P-L-E. The New York Times, not surprisingly, for my people, a transgender woman pursues an Olympic dream. NBC News, I did a rods, first transgender dog musher races to beat anti-trans sports bill. Another from NBC News, teacher suspended after speaking out against pronoun policy for students. That was in Virginia. A teacher who stood up and said this is an assault on humanity because he would not use the pronouns that he had been instructed to use. And then I looked on a a site called Healthline. Now get this. Here's Here's the headline. 64 terms that describe gender identity and expression. 64 terms. The fool denies what is plainly evident. And the fool believes in what they want to believe in regardless of any foundation. And it is happening so fast around us that we're not even recognizing how fast it's happening. We're not seeing how dramatic the attack is just on the essence of what a human being is or what human sexuality is or what the value of life is. I mean, just, just, this is basic stuff. This is not even complex in the sense of uh, the basic issues. And it's coming at us at warp speed. What else does unbelief do? Well, according to verse 2 and 3, unbelief draws the attention of God. Look again in verse 2. It says the Lord looks down from heaven. Verse 3, they've all turned away and they've all become corrupt. Now, the name that is used for the Lord here, Yahweh, is the name that God used for himself when he was speaking to Moses. This is God who is all powerful. This is the sovereign God. Now, what is God seeing when he looks down upon this earth? Well, this is similar to the scene at Babel in Genesis chapter 11. You remember after the flood, God commanded humanity to increase in number and to fill the earth. People decided to do the exact opposite, and they said, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that'll reach up to the heavens so that we can make a name for ourselves. And, and they decided they were going to build a great city and they were going to congregate there. So they built this gigantic tower to make a name for themselves, known to us as the Tower of Babel. And what did God do? God confounded the languages of humanity so they can no longer communicate with one another. And when I see some of the things that I see happening now, I have to ask the question that's asked in the Scripture How long, O Lord, how long will the insanity and the foolishness be permitted to go on? And God pronounced judgment on the wickedness that he discovered. Now, what is God looking for? He's looking to see if there's anyone who's wise. He's looking to see if there's anyone who seeks after God. He's looking for anyone who's not become corrupt. And the psalmist says very simply, They've all turned away. Now, I appreciate the commentary of John Walvoord and Roy Zuck uh, from years back. 
uh, related to this very thought. Here it is. Knowing that the human race is foolish and corrupt and that the Lord will destroy such people for their actions, the psalmist longed for the establishment of the Lord's kingdom on earth. They further explain a fool believes that there is no God and leads a corrupt life. These two statements are related. As a practical atheist, living his life as if there were no God, he is separated from the wisdom revealed in God's word. As a result, he is corrupt, spoiling whatever he does. His actions are vile, that is, he does abominable things that the Lord hates, and without faith, no one can please God, so there are none who do good. And then they conclude with this. The psalmist evaluation of the human race was based on the Lord's looking down to examine people. The psalmist pictured the Lord looking to see if anyone had understanding and if anyone was seeking after God. And remember, the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. And since the fool refuses to accept this fact, he has no understanding. Now, I believe God's assessment of the entire human race reveals the utter hopelessness of everyone without Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord and without the guidance of the Word of God. And it's very clear. There's a connection here. This psalm is actually cross-referenced in Romans chapter 3, where Paul is speaking of the futility of people who have gone their own way. He lays the foundation in the first two chapters, and then in chapter 3, he echoes what we find here in Psalm 14. And we also read in 2 Timothy 2 and verse 19 that the Lord knows those who are his. Now, if the Lord knows those who are his, you know what is conversely true? The Lord knows those who are not his. He knows those who ignore his will do as they please, restate the truth to fit their own desires. And the Lord is looking down on this whole thing. And he's going to bring it ultimately to a conclusion. Unbelief draws the attention of God. And then third, unbelief leads to dread. Look at verses 4 through 6. God seems in a sense to be amazed Uh, that the evildoers have no knowledge, no understanding, no ability to discern between good and evil. And there's confusion. David speaks of their confusion and the detrimental effects that are associated with it. Consider the incompetence. There's a lack of knowledge and understanding. People can be even wise from a human standpoint. They can be well-educated from a human standpoint. And they can be sharp from a human standpoint and be so focused on their own desires, fully determined to do as they please, that they fail to see the effects of ignoring the Word of God. And there becomes no accountability. There becomes no responsibility to God. And this is the age that we're living in, among a generation with no regard for themselves, no regard for other people, no regard for a holy and a righteous God. Now, you're going to find here in this passage as well the issue of uh, intolerance. It's very interesting because those whom David speaks of sought to consume and destroy Uh, any measure of resistance, anyone who might threaten their lifestyle, 
They'll stop at nothing to promote their agenda and to fulfill their lustful desires. And friends, we are experiencing this on a large scale today. There is an intentional movement within America to silence the Christian voice as being intolerant. In the irony of it all, that those who are reportedly the most tolerant of all are absolutely intolerant when it comes to the biblical faith. Those who have championed tolerance for their lifestyles have become totally intolerant of anybody who opposes their way of life. And there's a concerted effort to push Bible-believing, God-honoring Christians to the fringes of society, to a marginalization and an isolation, and it's not going to get anything but worse again, short of a spiritual awakening. Isolation comes from the fact that God is with those who follow him, and others who don't will stand in, is- in judgment before him, and we get isolated at times because our view of the scripture is contrary to what is promoted, celebrated, encouraged, even preferred in the society that we live in. And then he speaks here of intimidation. David had witnessed many social injustices committed um, against believers, often for nothing um, more than just being seen as inferior. Uh, The attitude of marginalizing people and standing against people, and he's certainly speaking out against that. He says in verse 5, then they will be filled with dread for God is with those who are righteous. And he says, you sinners frustrate the plans of the oppressed, but the Lord is his refuge. So unbelief is leading toward that dread. Now, what does that say to us as Christians? Should we just get angry and get mad about it and just get nasty like the world is toward us? Absolutely not. In fact, that should be the opposite of how we respond. Now, understand that the gospel itself is a stumbling stone and a rock of offense. So while the gospel is a stunning stumbling stone and a rock of offense, we are not to be a rock of offense as far as how we live and how we treat others. We are to treat other people as having been created in the image of God with dignity and love and respect, even when we don't get it in return. And our desire would be for people to see that there is a holy God who desires to save. That there is a God who has plainly but truthfully spoken to us in his word. That he has given us the truth about how to know him and how to walk with him by faith. And because he's given us this as a gift, remember, we couldn't measure up. There was nothing good in us. There was no reason why God would have saved us. He just did by his grace and his mercy. And we believe that he can do the same for anybody else. No matter what background they come from, no matter what their perspective is, no matter what worldview system they've been following up until now, God is a God who can redeem. And if we believe that, it's going to change how we live. It's going to make us desire to interact with the world around us, not withdraw from it, because you can be certain of this. The truth of the scripture will stand. God's word will not return void. God has been faithful to tell us about himself and about life and about salvation and about eternity. And he can be trusted. And that brings me to the last thought before I close. Deliverance comes from God by faith. 
Look again in verse 7. Oh, that Israel's deliverance would come from Zion when the Lord restores the fortunes of his people. Let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. While considering the depravity of man, David was not left without hope. While sin had ravaged the lives of many, the Lord remained sovereign. And God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. In him is our hope. And regardless of the time period that David was contemplating, uh, we do know that he lived prior to the coming of Christ. And although that event had yet to happen, David was most certainly looking forward to the coming of the Messiah with a great anticipation. And we too can rest with a great sense of anticipation because while we live on the other side of the first advent, uh, we can see that the wickedness of our day will not prevent the return of Christ and the consummation of all that God desires to accomplish. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church. Nothing will prevail against the truth. And David knew that God had been faithful to his people throughout history. If he spoke of the Exodus, he knew that God had delivered them from the bondage in Egypt. If it was through inspiration that he spoke of the coming bondage in Babylon, he knew that God would be faithful to restore his people. God will never forsake his own, ever. And he can be trusted. And God will ultimately restore Israel when he comes to establish his kingdom. And those who serve the Lord may suffer with a sense of adversity, uh, even at the hands of wicked men, but adversity will not last forever. God will bring restoration. We don't know how dark the world is going to get. We have no way of knowing what we might face in the future. I think we're going to face many, many more difficult and trying days before it's all said and done, but we can relate to these words of David. And it is abundantly clear that while our world is changing at a rapid pace, God is unchanging. And I cannot tell you that we're going to enjoy everything that's going to come our way, but I can tell you that we are more than conquerors if we are in Christ. So just hold steady. Don't worry about getting marginalized. Don't, don't worry about being pushed to the edges. Don't worry about any of that. Just stand in the solid anchor of God and his word. And he'll be faithful to himself and he'll be faithful to what he has said Regardless of what people say, regardless of how they redefine the truth, regardless of how they change it to fit their own lives, God is unchanging and he can be trusted. Let's pray together. Father, thank you tonight.